After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Jane. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Um, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, how do you greet the birth of a child? Occasionally, my wife reminds me uh, of the first words I said to her when our eldest son, Chris, was born. Now, you'd think on such an important occasion that I'd say something like, Megan, well done, you're wonderful. Or he's beautiful. Look at, look at him. I'm so proud. But I didn't say any of those things. Uh, instead, I held him in my arms and on one of the most significant occasions of my life, the first thing I said to Megan was, he's got a funny ear. <laughs> now, I can explain myself. Um, because I believe that all newborns look the same, you know, they're all kind of pink and wrinkled. I was a little bit worried that he might accidentally get swapped with another baby in the hospital's nursery, and so I was looking for a distinguishing feature. And in this case, it was a funny ear. He doesn't really have a funny ear, but that's what I found at the time. How do you greet the birth of a new child? Uh, now, every now and again, my curiosity takes over from me, and I consult Google on matters of social etiquette. And in case you ever go to hospitals, I know it's not too common a practice here in Hong Kong to go and visit uh, a newborn child at a hospital, but what, what's the social etiquette of what you're supposed to do? Let me help you. Uh, first of all, don't stay too long. You're only supposed to stay a maximum of half an hour. Uh, don't f say anything bad about how the mother looks, <laughs> no matter how tired she may seem. Uh, don't kiss the baby. Don't cough on the baby. I mean, this is pre-COVID advice. Um, you're probably not even supposed to touch the baby nowadays. Uh, don't give any negative comments on the name of the child, no matter how weird the name looks. And, and this probably is pretty important, don't ask the husband to describe the birth. There you go. <laughs> uh, how do you greet the birth of a child. Well, this year at St Andrews, our Christmas theme is Christmas 
playlists. Uh, We're thinking about Christmas carols and we're wanting to look at the old story behind these Christmas carols, this old story which tells truths about how real people in a real place, in a real time, responded to the birth of a child. And one of the people's favourite carols is, O come, all ye faithful. O come, all ye faithful. And many of you might know that this carol is essentially an invitation. It's an invitation to respond to the birth of the child. It's an invitation not just to recognise the birth, but to adore this child, to worship him. Because it's one thing to accept that this child existed, but it's another thing to recognise who this child was, what he has done, and therefore to worship him. Now, today we're we're thinking about Matthew chapter 2. Matthew records for us two different responses to the birth of this child boy Jesus. And it's instructive for us as we once again contemplate how we're to respond to the birth of this child. So, first response we see is from King Herod. And we're told in verse 1 that Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and straight away they go and they ask, where is the one who is to be born King of the Jews? And when King Herod heard this, we're told that he was disturbed. Now, now, why was he disturbed? Well, think about it. If, if anyone comes to a palace and asks, where is the one who's going to be the king? The person who's already the king is going to say, hang on, what about me? <laughs> I'm, I'm the king. What, what's going to happen to me? What are you talking about? Where is the king? I'm the, I'm the king. Now, to say that he was disturbed is an incredible understatement. Now, We know a little bit of history about Herod the Great. Uh, Herod apparently was a violent ruler, even by the standards of the day, especially towards the end of his life. Herod the Great became especially paranoid about threats to his rule. He had people killed in his own court, his own family who were threats to his rule, including one of his wives and three of his sons, all to make sure that his rule was not threatened. And when the Magi come and ask about this new king, later on, he tells them, well, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. We know Herod didn't want to go and worship this child. He had every intention of killing this child, killing this supposed threat to his rule. Now, we know that that's exactly what happens. Later on, when the Magi didn't come back and Herod had figured out that he'd been duped, he organises for the eradication, the elimination of all these children in that town, Bethlehem, of a particular age. Now, we know, given the size of Bethlehem at the time, that it would have been probably about 20 children who were murdered. Now, for us, such a thing is appalling, catastrophic. But back in Herod's time, in the measure of his rule, such a thing was not unusual. That's how barbaric his rule was. It didn't even merit any historical record. Now, we might think that such an extreme reaction is the response of a madman bent on safeguarding his rule. And this can be explained away because Herod is just a a nutter. But if you look at the rest of the Gospels, you see that Jesus caused opposition in all sorts of people. He grows up to make incredible claims that offended people all the time. 
You know, Jesus doesn't come along simply to be a healer who is going to make people well, to, to sort out their physical needs, nor is he simply someone who is a teacher, adding his philosophy to the marketplace of ideas. No, he makes extreme claims about himself all the time. He says, says things like, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. Jesus made these incredible claims all the time. And he didn't just claim to be the, the king of the Jews. He claimed to be the king over everyone on the whole earth. And he said to those people who, who wanted to follow him, things like, Un unless you hate your father and mother, even your own lives, then you cannot be my disciple. Or unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, he doesn't want his followers to hate their parents, literally, nor to carry up a cross, literally. But what he is doing is he's claiming absolute authority over you. He's wanting unconditional loyalty and obedience for us to place him on the throne of our lives. Now, these are the claims that we, we remember at Christmas. These are the claims that we sing about at Christmas. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. We, we declare these truths when we're walking in the shopping malls and we hear these carols wafting over the airwaves. But think about it. How, how have you responded to the claims that Jesus makes? Because the Bible says that all of us have a natural resistance against these claims. Deep down, the human heart has a natural hostility towards God's sovereignty over us. Deep down, we don't want Him to command us. Now, we know that two kings cannot rule at the same time. One king will have to give way to another. But deep down, we, we don't want to give up our throne. In every one of us, you could say there is a little King Herod wanting to rule. Now, this person here is uh, not Mr. Bean. <laughs> Instead, it's a philosopher, uh, a guy called Thomas Nagel. And he was pretty honest about the reasons why he didn't want to believe in God. He said this, I want atheism to be true and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. Now, do you see what he's saying here? Because he's, he's really honest. He says he has a cosmic authority problem. He doesn't want there to be a God. Now, you and I might push back. You know, we might say, okay, I, I believe that there is a God of some sort. Yes, I even believe that there is Jesus. Jesus existed. I believe that Jesus is in charge. Well, then think for it for a moment. Why is it that you find it so hard to pray? You know, if Jesus is the ruler of all things, why do you find it so hard to concentrate on him? Why do we find it, why do I find it so hard that my hopes and joys, even my thoughts, go elsewhere when I try to pray? Or why is it that if we say Jesus is in charge and, and I want to serve Him, why is it that I get resentful when my prayers don't work out the way I've asked them? You know, I, I, I imagine that if Jesus is in charge, He should answer prayers in the way He wills, 
But then I get resentful because things don't work out the way I planned them. It's because there is a little King Herod living in my heart. Why is it that we find it so hard to get rid of bad habits? You know, you make a mistake, you treat someone badly, you say to yourself, you you vow to yourself, I'm never going to do that again. But then you find yourself doing the exact same thing two weeks later. Why is it that we're pretty selective about what we want to believe and obey in the Bible? God, I'm happy to follow this, but this is just too hard. This I cannot believe. I'll follow this, but I won't follow that. It's because that we still want to be in charge of our own lives. You might not greet the birth of this child with the same hostility that King Herod did, but there is something deep down in us, in each one of us, where, where we don't want Jesus to be our King. So, that was uh, the response to this newborn Jesus from King Herod. What about the Magi? Well, many of us are pretty familiar with the Christmas story. Um, we, 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 we sing the carols, we, we buy the cards, but the story that we read in Matthew's Gospel is actually quite different to what we often sing and what we often see in pictures. Uh, we sing songs like We Three Kings of Orient Are, Matthew doesn't mention anything about three. I mean, there, there might have been three. There might have been a whole lot more than three of these people who came to visit Jesus. But nor are we told that they're actually kings because the word used is magi. It's, it's from the Greek word magos, which means astrologer or philosopher. Now, then in verse 11, we're told that they, they came to not a stable, but, but a house, which means that these guys came not the night of Jesus' birth, not even a few days afterwards, but likely a month at least after Jesus' birth. But regardless of all these details, it's hard to miss the major point. These magi, how many ever there were, came to see the King of the Jews. Now, look at how they approach Jesus. First of all, they come from a distance. We're told that they came from the east, Now, we don't exactly know specifically what that might be referring to, but it's likely it's Babylon or Persia, and that would have been a distance of months of travel. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they they need to ask for more specific instructions because, you know, they don't have Wikipedia or Google Maps, so they have to go to Jerusalem and ask the religious experts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, who know the answer straight away. They know where the Messiah was expected to be born because they were told in the prophet Micah, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. You know, these guys know all about the prophecies because the Messiah has a backstory. God had long promised His people a rescuer and so God's people were expectants. But do you notice, these priests don't go and accompany the Magi to Bethlehem. They don't, they don't go with them. Uh, Bethlehem is only a few miles away from Jerusalem, we know, and you'd think these chief priests and teachers of the law would listen to these magi and figure, oh, hang on, these guys have come a long distance. They've gone to a lot of travel to come here. Maybe we should just accompany them the last few miles of the journey to see if their hunch, if their theory is correct. But they don't go. They don't bother to go those last few miles. Do you see what it means? It means that you can be a religious insider. 
You can have all the right religious pedigree. You can be moral, you can follow the right religious rules, you can come from the right background and the right family. You can be the type of person who turns up to church, even if you have to, and you can still be a long way from God. Here are the ones who seem to be the closest to God, and yet they stayed at a distance. And yet the ones who seem the furthest away from God, you know, these pagan astrologers, they're the ones who come from a distance to draw near. So the Magi, first of all, they approach from a distance, but then secondly, they approach bearing their gifts. Let me ask you a question, what what would you give to a future king? Uh, Here are some of the gifts that were given to Prince George, the future king of England. Uh, From the Samburu community in Kenya, they gave him a black bull, four heifers and a goat. Um, Peter, which stands for the people for the ethical treatment of animals, uh, they gave George some royal regalia that was apparently cruelty-free, so that George would not wear any clothes in his future that were causing uh, cruelty to animals. Obviously, the Australians didn't get that that email because uh, one Aboriginal tribe from Uluru gave him a kangaroo fur coat and another tribe gave him a possum fur coat. Don't tell Peter. But what did the Magi give to, to, uh, to Jesus? Verse 11, we're told, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now, these gifts tell us something about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Gold is the gift of kings. It it acknowledges his right to rule. Frankincense was what was used in worship by the priests in the temple. There is something about what Jesus, this child, will do as a mediator, as a priest between God and humanity. And myrrh, well, well, myrrh is is, is used for embalming people at their death. Now, this is a strange gift, even an offensive gift, to give at the birth of a child. Now, here, here are these magi, they, they're coming bringing their gifts, and they can't see a clear picture of who this child would come to be, but they see enough. They have a glimpse. They've understood something of who Jesus is and what He came to do. They offered their gifts to this boy, this child, believing He was the King of the Jews. Now, we don't see that title again. We don't see that title, King of the Jews, again in Matthew's Gospel until the very end, in chapter 27, where it comes quickly in succession three times. At Jesus' trial, in verse 11, the governor asks him, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said so. Or in verse 28, they stripped him and put, uh, this is the soldiers, they put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head, they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him, hail, King of the Jews. Or in verse 37, above Jesus' head, as he was there crucified, lay the written charge against him, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Matthew wants to be clear. It's like he's saying it over and over and over again. If you want to understand what kind of child this, sorry, what kind of king this child will be, you have to take him out of the manger and put him on the cross. For Jesus to be king means he's going to be a suffering king. That was the entire reason that he was born. And he is a suffering king because we refuse to make him our king. 
You see, we were built to have God on the throne of our lives, but on all sorts of different ways, we refuse to let God sit on that throne. There is a little King Herod sitting there all the time. That's why Jesus came to earth. He went to the cross. He took the punishment for our sins that was rightfully ours so that we could have forgiveness and mercy, peace, grace shown to us. Now, the Magi could not see all of that clearly in front of them, but they saw enough. They came from a distance. They came bearing their gifts. They came to worship and adore. They, they accepted the invitation. Matthew tells us, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They worshipped. Worship means to, to ultimately subscribe supreme worth in your life to something or someone. And even with a moment's reflection, we know that we all worship something. Yeah, it can be your job, your career prospects, your reputation. It can be your looks. It can be your family. It can be a particular relationship that you're after. It can be lifestyle. It can be all sorts of things. Whatever it is in your life, that if you have it, you say to yourself, now I feel secure, now I feel happy. That's what we worship. But here, the Magi worshipped Jesus because they believed he was of supreme worth. They, they brought not only their gifts, but their hearts to him as well. And so how do you respond to the birth of this child at Christmas? This ancient but familiar story that we come to every year. How do you respond to the birth of this child? Perhaps the gift this Christmas that you could give is to say to Jesus from your heart, Jesus, I recognize that there is a little King Herod that sits in my heart that refuses to let you rule. But thank you that you came into the world to rescue me. I see that you are most worthy of my worship above anything else in this world that comes and goes. Thank you that you are worthy of my worship. And I want to let you be the king of my heart, the king of my life, because you are the one who is more precious to me than anything else. And in doing so, we echo the words of that song. O come, O come all you faithful, O come, let us adore him. For he is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for these ancient truths of people in a time far distant from us, in a place distant from us, who came to adore this child as their king and ruler. They came from a distance, they came close, they came bearing their gifts, but also their heart. But we want to recognize, Lord, we want to confess that there is like a little King Herod living in every one of our lives um, who refuses to, to bow down to Jesus. And so, Lord, would you uh, remind us again this Christmas of the extent of what you have done for us, that you have not withheld from us your own dear Son, the one through whom all things were created and yet who became a child and vulnerable and breakable for us. Lord, help us to once again come before him and adore him, we pray. Amen.